I'm honored to be graced by the presence of Therese, Teacher Sharice. Eh? Eh? Sure. We'll we'll go with that. Apparently you can't. I can't call you Professor Sharice. Because I am not qualified for the title. Oh, you need a PhD? You need a PhD. All right. Yeah. That's fine. Wait, um, so what's your... Um, all right, all right. For those unfamiliar, Sharice is a teacher at a university at Hong Kong Poly U. Yes, that's correct. Uh, Eugene made the announcement for me, essentially, by Boom. including it in the editor's letter last month. And I suppose this is the making it up announcement, which is weirdly kind of like a catalog of my personal life. If you just extracted like the first five minutes of the last 180 episodes. Yes, I have started at PolyU School of Design. I'm a teaching fellow. That's my official title. Yeah. In the communication design program. Have you had to interact with any students yet? I have. Just today. Oh. And I, I will be uh, present at orientation next Wednesday. You, you dress like a student. Man. What? You probably, like, someone might have confused someone you. Someone already has said that to me oh, from the general office, okay? Anyways. But these are new pants. Yeah, they're mustard-colored pants and an open daily t-shirt. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Open daily tee. Uh, new canvas trousers from Finisterre. I did some research on ethical fashion subreddits. Oh, interesting. This is one of the brands I came up with. Anyway, that was a lot about me. What's up with you? Not much. What title do you give yourself out of curiosity? Wait, like, what do you say, mean title? Let's say you meet someone new, like does not know who you are. How do I you don't. introduce yourself in a work-related context? I don't. Do you mean you don't meet new it's, people it's, or you it's, don't it's, No, it's immediately, yourself? it's immediately, it's immediately a test as in, do you need to have a conversation with me based off of some sort of work background? What if you, you you literally don't have a situation where you meet, I don't know, a stranger in a restaurant? Why would a stranger want to talk to me about my job and what well, I do? Well, it might come up. Okay, like, let's say you did. Let's say for whatever reason. I don't reason, use titles. I for sure don't use titles. I'm like, oh, I work on like this and that. I run a creative agency and I run like a publication. Uh -huh. Like, there's no, no titles. Like, I don't know. I've, I mean, I've said that before. It matters less to me because theoretically I'm at the top of the hierarchy of the things I do. Right. And I, I say that only because it's the well, truth, right? you built it. Yeah. Like if you're an employee in a company it's and you're, you're kind of like early in your career, I think the title matters a lot more. All right. Are we diving in? Is there more housekeeping? No, oh, nothing. You know what's exciting? We sold out of all the dispatch bags. Oh yeah, we did. On our end and on well, Rich Liu. Technically, from we sold out end. last week. Thank you for all your support. We are in the midst of restocking, right? I think the process in which we'll do this, this is still up for determination because I think what we'll do is. This is more complicated than restocking. Well, no, not really, because I think what you do is you just create another batch, right? And then yeah, you restock. But you guys but have been talking about the possibility of making modifications yeah the modifications exist so that you have like a generational lineage so it's like yeah, god so it's that's a really like, pretentious oh, way of saying i'm like, going to restock the exact same thing exactly it, it's um a little bit of what, what did you say generational lineage crafting or maybe it, or maybe there's like it. a I, I hate to say this but what happens if the next batch was slightly more expensive 
I'm fine with it if it, if it means that we've made improvements then, that justify the cost. Or, or the incentive is to buy early. I don't know. I'm making this up because I'm just thinking about Rolex. Ooh, now I have two interesting ideas. Okay. One, it would be exciting to me if we emailed, reached out to all the people who bought the first bag in like about a month's time or two months time and said, hey, what do you think of the bag? And here's like a survey and they give you your feedback. And we revise based off of what they said because they're like actual users who tested oh, the bag. Oh, I like that. I like that. Right. So I'm and not saying we, we necessarily do everything. Oh, yeah. I got to get record, record themselves and we'll put it into like an infomercial style. I'm down I'm with making it. that up too. We can do that too. Dude, that's a really good idea actually. Hey, I have another really good idea, but which I have stolen from a concert that is selling tickets right now in Hong Kong. And they opened the first day of their ticket sale at $10,000 a ticket. And then each progressive day, the price drops. So it goes from 10,000 Hong Kong dollars down to 10 Hong Kong dollars. Yeah. And I think that is a fascinating way to sell anything. Yeah. I mean, usually it's the opposite. You start low and you go higher. Yes. But why is it like what the first ticket obviously should confer some benefits. They're like in better areas. Yeah, of course. That makes sense. And also there's like a limited amount. Hell expensive. I mean, there's like details and they don't really, it was only for 24 hours though. And then the next day it went down to like 5,000 and then 2,500. Okay. Got it. Got it. It, So it drops every single day by like an exponential amount. And it's also kind of like a community experiment to see how many people are going to hold out for like the $10 tickets. Because if they sell it before, I find that like, yeah, very interesting. Yeah. But I've always been very fascinated with dynamic pricing in a way. But why? It's like, it's kind of, you know, we talk a little bit about capitalism, but I think that just like the efficiency of the markets is like something that's always kind of interesting. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash for Discord access, exclusive newsletters, shop discounts, and more. Let's get into it. Let's do it. You go first. I really liked this week's subject. I didn't read it. I I just, I'm honestly flabbergasted. (laughs) But I I found it. I'm offended. I'm offended. To be honest, I read enough of it. I read enough to know that this was relevant. And it was a bunch of articles per usual in the Macon Discord, which our very lovely Macon Discord members, and if you would like to join us, you can support us on Patreon, vote on. And they voted for a bunch. So good picks this week. Out of six, five of them were voted. Yeah. And one had two votes. And then I was like, oh, I don't know which one I'm going to go with for sure. I'll like scan through them. And Eugene was like, do this one. I had no idea. You- I can't believe you didn't read it. Because, okay, I didn't read it, but I knew what it was about. I've literally written in the intro. Thank you to Eugene. 
for saying I should choose this. But the thing I is, okay, my thanks, this this you know? to me is the power of the the influencer because I knew what would resonate with you. This is like harking back to next last week. Can you read week. what I said on WhatsApp? Because I think that's really important. All right. Eugene sends me the links, says, let's do number three for sure. And then you pick every single topic except five got a vote. I said, "Okay, thanks. I'll do one, four or six. Let me read them now. Eugene, I feel like one and four are easy. Six is more interesting and provocative because it's more emotionally rooted in deferring creative writing in a difficult subject to a computer. Juries. Okay, cool. I'm happy. And I was right. So if anything, this is a representation of my curatorial abilities. It really is, especially because you didn't read it. So I'm going to tell people what this piece is about. I very strongly recommend you to... I will read it, okay. You know what? It's fine. You don't have to anymore. Don't worry about it. Unlike Eugene, the rest of you should go read it. The author is Valhini Vara. It is published in Believer Mag, and the title is Ghosts. It's a collection of nine short stories about the author's sister's death. And the pieces have been written by Vara alongside GPT-3. So GPT-3 is short for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer 3, which was created by OpenAI. Essentially, in short, you feed the GPT-3 any kind of text and they will return a completion of the text attempting to match whatever patterns you give it in the text you gave, okay? So you, as a user, program it by showing it a few examples of what you would like to do, and its success varies depending on the complexity of the task. You want to fill in yeah, about so GPT-3? My familiarity with this has you know, spanned probably a few months. Like we've, we've been tracking it loosely because it's always been top of mind in relation to how it can potentially impact creative work. We've definitely talked about it. For sure. We've also talked about podcast. it in terms of how this same algorithmic approach could change how we uh, Photoshop images. Yes, definitely. It has been talked about from the aspect of visual work. And today we'll be talking a little bit about writing and authorship. I, I was think. messing around because there's some services out there that allow you to try it. And I don't know if. Yeah, I might have like subscribed to a trial and I was like, hey, write me some social media captions. And it wasn't really good. Mm. Definitely wasn't good enough for what I needed. Mm. Interesting. I've never played with it myself. Um, this is what the author of the short story says about this experiment. I had always avoided writing about my sister's death. At first, in my reticence, I offered GPT-3 only one brief, somewhat rote sentence about it. The AI matched my canned language. Clichés abounded. But as I tried to write more honestly, the AI seemed to be doing the same. It made sense, given that GPT-3 generates its own text based on the language it has been fed. Candor, apparently, begat candor. I think this point is really important because there's discussion around how to attribute who wrote something in the case of AI. And Vara's really clear about, you know, what's been generated by GPT-3 and what she wrote, because in the layout itself, the sentences that she authored are bolded. Yes. And then the ones that aren't are, you know, we know that it's by the GPT-3. Because it's written out almost like a typewriter. Yeah, exactly. Like, so, yeah. But conceptually, it is muddled because AI is only 
able to generate these specific combinations of words because of what she specifically fed it. As in, you and I would get different results from it, even if we attempted the same subject. Like if we hypothetically were to write about a sister's death, the result would definitely be tonally completely different. Yeah. And so while there is criticism of AI writing, I think of it as just like an extension of the author. Yeah. Does like, that make sense? So for me, the most important conversation here is what is the purpose of writing? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, if I'm going to be very honest, like for me, it's like communication, right? If communication is the critical pillar, then it doesn't, it matters less whether writing is good or bad because it comes on the back of some AI influence. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think where it becomes a little bit murky is just like, is it transparently known? Because I think this is the question that maybe is a little bit more pertinent to the world of Photoshop, right? Because you might Photoshop something to look a lot different than what the reality is. And that is where it encroaches on a certain space. But I think when writing, if it's done, let's call it creative writing. If yeah, it, this is. It's this a is little creative bit different. Yeah, it's a little bit different Gosh, in terms of the outcome. creative fiction. Yeah, totally. Like Vara's piece, or this series of short stories, they would be considered, I think, by most people to be creative writing, whether you call it creative nonfiction or fiction because that line's a bit blurry with the AI involvement. But there is definitely a problem if, let's say, you gave AI news reports to generate. I think news reports would be even easier. But you would want to know, wouldn't you? Correct. But I think that news reports, as long and not to get into this debate over fake news, but as long as the objectivity of the bullet points is correct, it should be easy. Sure. Like yeah. there, there's no style really no, required. No, I agree. I mean, I, I think in some ways it would be more clear cut because you're dealing with supposedly harder facts to do with numbers and stats and things. But the, the need for transparency doesn't go away in terms of like, was this written by a human author or an AI? And trust could go either way. Actually, yeah. your trust might increase knowing that an AI wrote it yeah, as opposed to the human author. So here's something. When I write emails... In Gmail, I don't know if you have this feature oh, turned yeah, the on. Predictive text. Predictive text. That technically is AI. Oh yeah, yeah. Like if people are unfamiliar, don't use Gmail. Sometimes it's in Outlook as well. Yeah, sometimes. So I mean, I don't know what email client you use, but it's in several. But basically, what it means is that when I'm writing something, it'll provide the end of the sentence. Yeah. And you can hit like tab or something, and it'll just complete. And so it's not it's just like, like one or two words. If it could I be wrote like an email. I wrote, yeah. "Hey Eugene, comma." And then I wrote hope it would most likely show me in gray. This email finds you well, like it, yes. it really would. And then I could press tab and then move on to my next sentence. So my question to you is, I hate it. Is it because it's question? tracking? Is it tracking on your actual writing behavior or is it because it's just utilizing what are the most common aspects of it? Because here's a good question. How often do you deny? On my... How often do you deny the auto suggestion? I never use it. Because I'm stubborn and stupid. Oh, I always use it. Because I'm like, oh, that I would definitely yeah. say that. Okay, you definitely use it because that's the type of person you are about like efficiency. No, but it's actually what I would say though. It's actually predicting you what do. I was going to say. I'm about to tell you I something. I swear to God. I'm about to tell you something that you're going to think I'm being so ridiculous about this. It bothers me so much 
that the computer is predicting what I will write, that even if it gets it right, and I did want to write, hope this email finds you well, I won't because the what? computer no. suggested that that's what I want to write. And then but you I'll did. I will say, I don't know. In hope that situation, things are going like, fine and dandy. Sure. Yeah, definitely. What? That actually sounds accurate. You, oh my God, you're. I, I don't know wow. how. Wow. 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 I'm. To rationalize that behavior. Um, you're anti-tech. I'm worried. This is what it is. I am concerned. That if I use the predictive text too much, I will somehow lose track of what it is that I actually wanted to say. Or it just frees up mind space because like, oh, yeah, like. Yeah, most emails are systematic. Yeah, they're not for creative writing, which is why I think it's totally fine with communication is the core. Yeah. Dude, man, save, save yourself some time. You're, you are right. I will admit, like if I'm writing. I'm stubborn about a lot of things, Eugene, but I'm not stubborn about this. Thanks for the attachment. Got it. Get back to you tomorrow. Honestly, the computer could have written that entire email. Exactly. I should just let it. Like, there's so many websites out there that employ writers. And this is semi addictive. Grammarly ads drive me up the wall. Grammarly ads uh, on YouTube. Oh. <laughs> about yeah. letting Grammarly. Sorry, for folks who don't know, Grammarly is a service. It's like a plug-in. Yes. We'll insert some of their YouTube ad right here. Grammarly is like predictive text where they make recommendations to how to improve your writing according yeah. to them. And I hate it because it will make everyone sound like Grammarly. And yes, in the context, as you mentioned, of business emails, doesn't matter so much. But let's say you're a student and you're writing a final paper. I, as now a newly fledged official teacher, <laughs> would hate if I could tell that they had all used Grammarly. Yeah, it'd be terrible. Okay, wait. Let's go back to this AI question. So I want to talk a little bit more about Vara's structure, which I found really compelling. Like I said, there were nine short stories, and the first one begins with a shorter part that was authored by her. It's only 24 words. I did the calculation myself. It's not in the piece. And then there's 212 words by GPT-3. And each story begins in the same way with sentences written by Vara. And eventually in the ninth story, the balance is totally shifted where there are 935 words written by Vara versus only 15 by GPT-3. So I love this progression because that says something too about this relationship between the author and the AI, about using the AI as a way to find out what it is you actually want to say. Yeah. One thing that I think is worth also bringing to light is I think both you and I are confident writers, but what happens to your not a confident writer and or you don't have the skills like maybe english is your second language so you're not as proficient in writing mm -hmm. so that's why i think this is something that's actually worthwhile to explore because it's frustrating for all parties if i'm misinterpreted but let's say that um let's switch english let's say it's like writing in chinese or whatnot like yeah. i'm a, i'm learning how to write chinese and it can interpret what i'm trying to say and better communicate so that there's no issues with uh, understanding. Totally. On the flip side, now that you've said Chinese, if 
I was typing in Gmail and there was a Chinese predictive text, I would definitely use it because that would help me out immensely. Yeah. I mean, you're coming and approaching this writing tool from a different perspective as as somebody that has a skill set to do it. Sure. Yeah. That changes it because I, for me, like I would, I think maybe also I use it because sometimes I'm not confident with my writing. So having something that is maybe more rooted in objectivity means that there's no way that you can poke and prod at some sort of objective issue with my writing because the spelling is obviously correct. The grammar's on point, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, it is significantly much more helpful to learn how to write when you use existing writing, essentially. It was actually a type of writing practice where you take existing text and you remix it or edit it or delete parts of it in order to change that into what you want to say because everyone gets much more overwhelmed by a blank piece of paper mm -hmm. than words already existing and that's kind of like what gpt3 or any ai can provide yeah is like the raw material for you to work with yeah i did i did generally though i re finished reading this and my first takeaway was not deep thoughts about AI, but that I found it really beautiful. So I wanted to read a little bit of what Vara wrote as well as what the GPT-3 wrote. And I'm going to start by reading what every story starts with. Yeah. So each story begins with the author's words, and this is what it says. My sister was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma when I was in my freshman year of high school, and she was in her junior year. And that one sentence is, carries through all nine stories. And then here's a sample of what the GPT-3 wrote in one of the stories. But these are just the details that are universal to all sisters. If I describe the color of her eyes and the shape of her fingers, you might think I was describing someone else. Even if you knew my sister, you might not recognize her in these details. Why is it that though we look at our siblings so closely, we forget them so quickly? So I can't describe her to you, but I can describe what it felt like to have her die. It felt like my life was an accident, or worse, a mistake. I'd made a mistake in being born, and now, to correct it, I would have to die. I'd have to die and someone else, a stranger, would have to live in my place. And I was that stranger. I still am. I just wanted to read, like, all of it out loud. It's so good to, for me. Like, maybe I don't know if it's your cup of tea, but this type of writing, like, had I not known that it was the GPT-3, like, if it was in this other Stylistically, context, you liked it. I would have loved it. Still, I would have thought it was, like, Can you objectively, yeah. and was able to capture grief in a human way, which is, like, an intentionally chosen adjective. Grief that I would have thought could only be described by having lived that experience of grief. You'd call it humanistic. <sighs> One of Eugene's favorite words, my friends. Yes, I would call it humanistic. And I would think that it was actually a distinctive writing style. Yeah. But again, you know, like I said at the top, it could only produce this writing by having been trained by the author. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it because ultimately the input is influencing the output and it's the training so i guess in light of that you actually have no issues with the the writing and even 
despite having access to various tools that you don't really like using, you're okay with this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Maybe it challenges myself. And, but maybe it's also about that transparency. You know what would be funny is like if I started using the email predictive text, but then I added a disclaimer in my signature to say parts of this email were written by GPT-3 or whatever AI yeah. the male client uses. Maybe yeah. that would actually make me feel better. Maybe it's like the impersonation that bothers me. So that I've like taken the computer's voice as my own. Yeah. Like for me, if I'm going to be honest, like I'm really good at identifying how a style should fit into an particular like requirement but i am not good at being the one to go and write it i mean changing your writing style is hard after you yeah. have something established because my writing style can be comical at times but it's mostly like just basic like it's it is what it is but what i'm trying to say is that if i knew that i was trying to be funny for this one sort of caption or whatever i had to write something no i could have someone else iterate on it would be so helpful for me because I'm the one that's sort of cleaning up the end. I'm not the one that's having to like define the string of words. What is more helpful to you, actually, as you've described, is text language AIs that could be um, based off of like a predetermined set of styles. Yeah, like Grammarly kind of does that, but it's more about applying grammar style or so writing you, style you to... you could input like, these are the bullet points I need mm -hmm. in this social media caption or whatever, or this campaign. Can you make this humorous? Can you make this charming? Yeah. Things like that. Because like, even humor itself has so many that's true. nuanced parts, right? Like, yeah. what demographic? Who's the one that's looking at this? I did have one... I don't know if this is too academic but i've been reading a lot for the teaching job because i have to assign readings now and one thing i was reading was writing by a group called the serving library it's a collective of authors and designers and they wrote an idea that takes abstract shape in the mind is transposed via language into the concrete world pure information is a misnomer Every transmitted idea must be carried in a container, and that container inevitably asserts itself back onto the idea it contains. John Cage put it simply, it is like a glass of milk. You need the glass, and you need the milk. I was thinking about this quote in relation to the writing with GPT-3 because the AI writing is just a choice of container, and I don't think it is like lesser or greater than what comes naturally from an author's brains, but it does affect the idea that is transmitted. In this case, the idea in Vara's article is grief or this experience of grief and healing. And there are many ways in which it could be conveyed into the world, as this quote says, into the concrete world. And it happens to be that the container she chose is GPT-3. Mm -hmm. That's it for me. Yeah, I think ultimately it's it's a nice reflection on where we're going in terms of creative tools and applications. Like I said, I I can only really kind of give you insight into why I would find it useful. And I can see you from a position of purity, but also because you have the capability of articulating and writing at a high level that you would push against it. 
I've said this a lot of times, I don't feel super confident about my writing. So things that would help me feel better about it and to make sure that I'm communicating properly would be super helpful for me. I think it's just going to be very interesting to see the different experiments and contexts in which it is applied and maybe the part of me that pushes back. It's funny because you said you're not so confident in writing and maybe my reaction is because of a confidence in writing. But then I actually think part of it is like, like I said, like a fear of me losing the footing at which I'm at with mm-hmm. writing, that using a tool would not further my craft, but take me back. But maybe I'm wrong and yeah. maybe I need access to open AI. I mean, the future, the future might actually be a battle around not who's the best writer, but who is the best at training. I mean, the training is also writing. It takes writing to do the training. Yeah. You can't get away from putting words into sequences. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Sounds good. My topic this week is facing outrage over bikini rule, handball federation signals likely change. So this was a piece that appeared in the New York Times by Jenny Gross, who discusses the increasing number of discussions around the role of uniforms and to a degree the sexualization of women in sport. Uh, One of the most glaring examples was a 2019 beach handball tournament in Romania where German player Lucy Marie Kretschmer noticed a man sitting front court capturing images and videos of women in their sports federation enforced bikini bottom uniform. So basically all the women that are participating need to wear bikini bottoms. Uh, And Kretschmer mentioned, this made me really think, okay, maybe they're not watching us as professional players, but rather they're watching us as free time activity of watching some girls in bikinis. And this conversation, I think around uniforms, is part of a broader narrative around sexism and double standards in sports. Because for a lot of women in these sports, like their uniforms are often a little bit different than what men have to wear, and they're enforced quite heavily. And more recently, last month, the Norwegian beach handball team was fined 1,500 euros for not wearing their bikini bottoms. And since then, actually, a lot of other federations came out in support of the Norwegian team because they said that the uniform requirements were sexist. And, you know, for some athletes, I think they feel uncomfortable wearing the bikini bottoms for various reasons. I think, one, it's like burying your skin. The other side, I think that it's problematic is also the sexualization of their uniforms because I recall, and it's not new, but right around the Olympics kicking off, like there were articles that were like, we shouldn't over, we shouldn't sexualize athletes. And on the flip side, be like, check out these hot girls. Right. And they were, they might actually come from the same publication like Vice. Yeah. 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 It's a problematic for sure. Yeah. So what I'm going to do is actually run through more of the stories within this sure. and then yep. what we'll do is we'll talk about the broader implications of it okay let's all right. hear alright and another thing that's probably not discussed is the cultural aspect of forcing athletes to showcase themselves in these um, what's, a, what's a good word of like describing I guess revealing yeah revealing I basically force him to wear more revealing clothing for the yeah. sake of under the guise of sport or you can the, just say sorry <laughs> revealing is one way to put it but also, just clothing that someone wouldn't pick for themselves. 
because I think the subject, I know you're going to go on and talk about this at greater length, but the subject also talks about other types of uniform requirements in the past, which we've talked about the head coverings as yeah. well to force someone not to wear or to wear is to enforce rules about people ch- not being able to choose how they represent themselves, essentially. So here's a quick recap that speaks to the cultural aspect of forcing athletes to showcase themselves in a more revealing light. Ker Gerlio, the head of the Norwegian Handball Federation, said that since 2006, Norway has repeatedly complained about these uniform requirements to the IHF, which I assume is like the International Handball Federation, because some of their teammates and some of their players feel embarrassed by having to expose so much of their body. And in American Samoa, the general culture there is a little bit more reserved and conservative. So for some players, wearing bikini bottoms especially younger players, made them feel particularly uncomfortable. And then like to that same point about American Samoa, in 2017, after winning a regional tournament, they were told that if they wanted to advance to the next levels of competition, they would need to wear sort of the sanctioned uniforms, the bikini bottoms. You know, I think that the, the big discussion that, that exists here is really about, first and foremost, why do we need to enforce these rules? And like, Secondly, what is the what is the value? Because I think ultimately comfort has always been critical towards an athlete's performance. And that could be psychological and physical, right? Sure. Like, yeah. If I they want to wear baggy shorts that they feel will allow them to still perform, they should be given that opportunity. And I also think that it's getting to a point now where you're recognizing that whether it's corporations, in this case federations, the people that are making the rules actually don't have a lot of understanding of the player's concerns and we, mm-hmm. we looked at this from the from the lens of tennis right yeah like these people are kind of really outdated in their perspective in pov and i think it's starting to enter a space where maybe it's because of the power of social media the voices of the athletes are increasingly um stronger yeah and ideas are being disseminated at a much faster rate Actually, there is a tennis outfit example as well if you remember serena williams yes. post giving birth to her daughter the wore cat this black cat suit that the federation said or whatever the organizing body was like you can't wear that and part of it was well this is a bit of speculation i don't remember if the um sports body officially said this or not but people said like oh it's because serena offended their idea of like acceptable fashion in tennis because usually it's like you know skirts skirt, and things like yeah. that right um but then she was wearing that outfit for like medical compression reasons, something like that related to being post-pregnancy. So I was going to say when it comes to sports, I suppose there are legitimate concerns if an outfit can give an advantage. For example, swimming, Mm. which is the only example I can actually think of. Yeah. Where the material of the suit could potentially actually make a difference in performance. But other than that, I don't see the, I don't see any reason. Yeah. I mean, from a historical context, I think this whole discussion around female uniforms has gone on for decades. Like back in 1999, Brandy Chastain of the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team scored the winning penalty kick against China. And then she ripped off her top and she's wearing a sports bra, which obviously, you know, you'd be wearing a sports bra. That itself kicked off a flurry of discussion. I think one of the more interesting conversations is also, and this is like, you could probably speak to this better than I can, but there seems to be 
very big dis- and important discussion around my ability to make personal choices and your ability to and your your reaction to it. So like while I might want to wear something because it makes you feel uncomfortable, then I need to not do it. To use that sports bra, sports bra example, there was uh, these track athletes at Rowan University who had uh, complaints filed against them because the football coach said that the female team training in their sports bras was distracting the football team, right? And it's kind of like, well, if this is like how I want to train, why can I not train like that? Yeah. Yeah, because apparently for the male team's comfort at the sacrifice of the women's rowing team's comfort. And it, it that example just shows that the rowing team and Brandy Chastain shows this it's a male gaze yeah. of being female, in this case specifically female athlete, because you can neither be too sexual or not sexual. Because you started by talking about the exactly. handball team's being required to wear bikini bottoms, which they feel uncomfortable because it is too revealing. And yet another example is I choose sportswear that I find most comfortable and you find it to be overtly sexual. Yeah. There, there is no winning here. Yeah. But also what what needs to be mentioned is that like, it's always the men who are defining what is offensive. Yeah. Right. And same thing with like, I mean, I appreciate you saying that. Well, yeah, it's like the case of like tampons, right? Like for example, Men have an aversion to it, but then we're only half the equation, right? For females, it's it's like normal, right? So I think that that's something that I think can and will change. I mean, for me, okay, this is probably the most difficult and challenging thing is that the sexualization of women's sports reduces the skill, talent, hard work that women put into it, right? But in light of that, one of the big discussions now is like, equality of pay within sports or just like building businesses so if you remove the sexualization of women's sports and you might lose let's say some part of the audience is what what is the outcome of that right i mean it is a depressing view on the world sorry that's a joke but you Um, you would you would agree that it's valid right like i understand what you're saying because to take it to an extreme you know, Handball Federation allows women to wear whatever they want. They cover up more. Ticket sales drop as a result. Very unfortunate, very depressing. But then the federation and teams and individual players get less money. That sucks. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's kind of a, a tough. It's it's just tough. Oh, yeah. Right. That is tough. That really, really. Because what spawned this the shit part of this. this this sort of like overview was uh, female influencers, like, you know, on social media who might start a, a swimmer line. They might have a million followers, but the reality is that like maybe 60% of their followers are male who wouldn't buy like a, a bikini or like a, a one piece swimsuit. But that 1 million number probably helps them get money in other ways. Yeah. So I, I don't know the the solution because in reality, you're, you're hoping that just a very fact that you're championing women's sports like hopefully there's people that are going to support it for the purity of the sport i was just right? gonna say that we have to believe that there are enough of those people or that there will be enough of those people who are appreciating women's sports for the sport and not the male gaze or sexualization of women in any way and you in order to move forward 
we have to act on that belief. My unpopular opinion would be no. Because I think the reason being is actually because I think once you drop off from the highest level of sport, there's just not enough attention and you need to find a way to batch as much attention. Because I'm so familiar with grassroots leagues, like professional leagues in smaller markets, whether it's Hong Kong, whether it's in Canada, like there's just not enough support because they're like, first off, they're not the biggest draw in town. Secondly, they're, they're competing against other sports, um, other activities. So like you actually kind of have to find a way to create the largest fan base possible. I cannot possibly approve of, I cannot agree with that. No, but it's just the reality. Like, I'm not saying like I agree with it, it, but I'm just saying like. It it does harm in ways beyond sports to allow the continued sexualization of female athletes, whatever that looks like, hurts other people who are also in sports. It perpetuates a way of society that just we we can't the the outcome would be like hey you know what give people the opportunity the option to choose i think that's already a big part like if someone wants to go and continue to wear if a team decides hey we're totally comfortable with the bikini bottoms we also think the bikini bottoms get us like more ticket sales then fine it could also be what it is it could also be two options you could either wear shorts or you could wear bikini bottoms it's kind of the same thing they should just get a pick right yeah that's what I'm saying. Like, I think that's actually like the the middle ground right now. It still doesn't really solve like the big challenge of thinking about, you know, is is the entertainment factor of the sport because of the sport and because of the skill or is it because of something else? Can I throw in like a really big pet peeve of mine yeah. that happened over the Olympics? So as we all know, I watched a bunch of the Olympics this year and I wound up in a bunch of conversations about the Olympics. And so many people, both people I knew and just people on the internet, kept remarking on how masculine female athletes looked in a derogatory way. As in to say, oh, did you see the Chinese women's basketball team? It looked like a bunch of men. We couldn't mm-hmm. tell the difference. It, it just, I just got so angry about it because of this conversation that we're having. Yeah. Like, it just shows that you do not care about the actual performance of the team. You care most that they don't appear the way you want them to appear. Yeah. So bummed out by this. Yeah. I don't know what the solution is. I think the solution is not within sport itself, but already at a, it needs to happen at a more foundational level, like a more foundational societal level. But I think that ultimately we we are arriving at a place where I think there's a little bit more open-mindedness around how people look and how they want to look versus I think an older generation that is still stuck in their ways because you know what it's true it's like you know I'm I think you would agree that I'm I'm pretty judgmental and like sometimes I have to remind myself and you know I was watching this uh episode with uh this guy Taji on uh Vice and he does a lot of like weird things like he'll go to the worst rated nail salon and then get his nails done and then he'll like comment on it but then one of the things he did he went to this party like the craziest party in america or something and it was interesting because like you know as they interviewed the people that attended they're like oh the reason why i like to come here is because like there's no judgment mm. like you just go and like i can do what i want to do mm. and not to say that they were all young people that went but i think that that's something that i lose sight of sometimes because i think that when when part of your 
professional career is built off of a point of view, sometimes like that also gets in the way and in, into all aspects of your life that don't need to have a point of view or that strong of a point of view. Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard because I also find myself having to untrain parts of my brain that just default in a certain way. And here's an example that I read about online. If you notice strangers or people tend to comment on babies, if they're boys, usually people will say, oh, he's so smart. He's so clever. And then if it's a girl baby, they'll say, oh, she's so cute. Like, look so at her pretty, hair. So but, pretty. Yeah. Look at her cheeks. And people just default to that. I'm not saying that I'm not trying to be really judgmental because I've totally done the same thing. And it's just like so ingrained within us to interact people according to like very defined gender norms. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of actively observing how you are looking and judging other people. Yeah. Good place to cap things off. Yeah. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Macon. Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord, where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.